Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Last week's interview with the Mendiolas sparked some hot debate on the Truth and Justice podcast fans page on Facebook. A few listeners took issues with the fact that I told Juan that we know that there was never a man faking a woman's voice inside Catalina's apartment. The complaint was that I stated it as fact rather than an opinion. In response to that, I'll agree that in the context that you heard me say that, it definitely was out of line. However, as I explained in the follow-up, That part of the conversation occurred after Juan and I talked about the issue in the kitchen between segments of the interview. After laying out the facts, he also agreed that the story was, in his words, bullshit. That's what I meant when I said, we know it didn't happen. He and I equals we. But my failure to clarify that did spark a lot of great discussions and debate about the mystery man in the apartment. Enough that today... I want to focus on what could be a linchpin of this case. This is Season 10, Episode 25, The Voice. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Why is it important to know if there really was a man inside Catalina's apartment faking an old woman's voice? Well... It's important for a couple of reasons. Number one, if the fake voice event did actually occur, then it all but rules out all four of our main suspects. If Eva, Katie, and Youngster were outside while the killer was inside, and Jen was walking towards the scene while the killer was inside, then all four of them are innocent. But then there's the second reason, and that's that if the fake voice did not happen, then logic would tell us that at least one of our suspects was involved in the murder in some way. And so, there are three steps that we're going to go through today. We're going to take a deep dive into all the witness statements regarding the voice and try to determine if it actually happened. I also want to talk about the utility of making up the story if it is indeed a lie, from all four perspectives. And then lastly, I'm going to lay out my case for who made the story up to begin with. Did it come from recalling an actual event, 
or was it a narrative created by one of our suspects? First and foremost, we need to determine when the fake voice entered the collective narrative. And this is actually a big clue as to whether or not it actually happened. Over the last few months, we've talked a lot about Eva's three statements. Her oral interview on the scene a few hours after the murder, her written statement taken at the police station a couple hours after that, and then her follow-up oral interview a week or so after Jen was arrested. But we actually have a statement of sorts from Eva before she ever talked to the police. Let me read you the different accounts of what Eva said to the managers in the apartments in those critical first few minutes. This is Pam Wiley's first statement to Detective Swainton on the day of the murder. Quote, Eva from apartment number 58 came into the office. The young black female was screaming, call the police. The old lady is dead. Now this changes slightly in her written statement where she writes, quote, Eva was yelling hysterically, something's wrong. I heard the lady screaming, come on. She then goes on to say, quote, Eva told me she thought the woman had fallen, end quote. So in Eva's very first statement, she not only doesn't mention to Pam that she believed that there was a man inside the apartment, but she in fact tells her that, quote, she thought the woman had fallen. For another perspective, let's look at the handwritten note signed by Janine Smith. Quote, the resident in number 58 came bursting into the leasing office, insisting that she heard help, help coming from number 57. She heard banging and screams. So there's no doubt about it. The man with the fake voice was absolutely not a part of the narrative in Eva's first version of the story. Aside from what's written in these reports, we can also deduce this from the actions of Pam Wiley. She says that she went right to the apartment alone with just her and Eva and immediately tried to open the door. There's no way that she would have attempted to enter the apartment if she believed that there was a man inside hurting Catalina. The next time one of our suspects shares any information about what happened comes at about the time that the paramedics are arriving on scene. Ruby Sullivan tells investigators that at the time Truesdale was entering the apartment, quote, two black boys come out of the upstairs apartment. They're both saying out loud, did anybody hear the woman screaming for help? They were saying that her screams were so loud that everybody should have heard her screaming for help. After that, a black female I know as Eva came out of the apartment. So this is after Eva went to get Pam and they returned. While Keith is still inside, Eva was in the apartment with Katie and Youngster. Ruby didn't hear the boys say anything about a man inside the apartment. She only heard them talking about the screaming. But after they left the apartment, Katie and Youngster actually walked up to Ruby's daughters to tell them what happened. In Nina Sullivan's written statement, she says that as she heard the ambulance approaching, Katie and Youngster walked towards her and Cena. They met in the parking lot and, quote, Pharrell asked us if did we hear anybody scream. As the ambulance pulled into the parking lot, Pharrell and his brother walked off away from what was happening. And this is what Cena had to say. Pharrell and his brother stopped us in the parking lot. Pharrell asked us if did we hear anybody scream. This section and both sister statements are actually verbatim the same, so I think that they may have been interviewed together. Regardless, both say that Katie and Youngster made a point to walk over to them and stop them in the parking lot. They asked the twins if they heard the screaming, but again, no mention of a man mimicking a woman's voice from inside the apartment. 
Now, you might say that it just didn't come up, but come on. Do you really believe that a couple of teenage boys wouldn't share the craziest part of the whole story? I don't. Next up is Jen's first statement. Jen first speaks to Officer Peekert on the scene. Now, she's giving a statement to a police officer that she now knows is investigating a murder. And this is what the report says. Quote, Witness Jennifer Jeffley stated that she stays above the complainant and that at approximately 9.20 a.m. she heard the complainant yell for help. The witness went to the complainant's door and started knocking on the complainant's door. The witness told the officer that she then went to the office to get the manager. Now, there seems to be some confusion here. We know that Jennifer isn't the one that went to the office. I don't know if she told him that Eva went to the office and he got that part confused, or Eva and Jen may have been standing there telling the story together, or it's possible that Jen lied and said that she's the one that went to get the manager, but I highly doubt that. Everyone there knew that Eva was the one who went. But either way, there's a bigger point. Again, what is the narrative? She heard the complainant yell for help. Then she knocked on Catalina's door, and then, quote, the witness told the officer that she went to the office and got the manager. No fake voice, no man inside, just Catalina yelling for help. If you're adding all that up, we now have Eva, Katie, Youngster, and Jennifer all telling different people what happened, and none of them so much as whisper a single word about a man in the apartment disguising his voice. And that narrative holds true for about an hour before, just like Katie and Youngster had done with the screaming, Eva now starts telling everyone on the scene about a voice coming from inside the apartment. Listen to these excerpts from Keith Truesdale's written statement. I believe that he was the very first person to give a written statement. He did an oral interview on the scene and then was immediately transported to the police station to give his written version. He started his written statement at 12.29 p.m. on the day of the murder, about two hours and 45 minutes after he discovered Catalina's body. Check this out. Quote, I saw two young black ladies standing outside with my manager, along with an unknown black male. I recognize one of the black ladies to live in apartment number 58, and her name is Eva. Both of the black ladies appeared to be frantic. Eva kept saying, oh my God, you gotta help her. Eva repeated the same thing over and over. You gotta help her. I was told that Eva was the person who ran to the office and told them to call the police because she heard the lady screaming and that it sounded like she was thrown up against the wall. You'll notice there's still no mention of a man using a fake voice. Now, he does add that Eva told the managers that it sounded like Catalina was thrown up against the wall, but we learn a little further down in his statement when he heard that part. Also, he's playing telephone here. We have statements from the managers themselves, and that's not what they said Eva told them. But listen to this part. Quote, Later on, I heard Eva tell everyone that after she heard the noises, screams like someone was being thrown up against the wall, she hollered out asking if everything was all right. At which time, Eva said that she heard a voice say everything was all right and that they had just fell and hit her head. So there it is. This is where the first version of the fake voice entered the narrative. To recap, the first version of the story comes directly from Eva. She tells the managers and leasing agents that she heard Catalina screaming and that she needs help. No mention of a man or stranger inside the apartment. Next up, Katie and Youngster spend a few minutes in the apartment with Eva 
and then come out yelling for everyone to hear that everyone should have heard the lady screaming. Then they walk up to Nina and Cena Sullivan and tell the girls that the lady was screaming really loudly and again that everyone should have heard the screaming. Those three events occur in the first few minutes after the incident, between the time when Eva ran to the office and when the ambulance arrived. Then Officer Peekert begins canvassing the witnesses. He speaks with Jen there at the scene, and she relays the same story. She heard Catalina yelling for help. Nothing about a man with a disguised voice. And all of this happens before around 11 a.m. And then sometime within the next hour, according to Keith, Eva started, quote, telling everyone that she heard noises like someone was being thrown up against a wall, and she heard a voice say, I just fell and hit my head. Still no mention of a man inside the apartment, but we can see that this is where the story begins to evolve. And by 1.30 in the afternoon, Eva finally adds the actual fake disguised voice into her story. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family vdw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus Now that we've established that the man disguising his voice was not part of the original narrative, let's now break down all the different versions of the stories that came later when it was included. As I do this, I think you'll at least understand why, through my statement analysis, I've concluded that the voice never actually happened. Even if you don't agree with me, this is how I landed here. Since Eva was the first to include this element into her narrative, I'll start with her version, and then I'll add in the other versions to compare and contrast. Since I've already read everyone's entire statements to you, I'm going to try to present the different versions in more of a bullet point approach this time. If you want to reread the word-for-word accounts, the statements are available on our website. All right, let's begin with Eva. She sits down for an oral interview with Detective Swainson at around 1.30 p.m., And this is how she describes the scene. Eva says that after Jennifer left to use the phone, she fell back asleep. Then she heard a woman screaming for help. First, she thought it was coming from next door, but then she realized it was coming from the unit below her. She says that she, quote, jumped out of the living room couch. And when she opens the door to investigate, it's only as she's opening the door that she notices Katie and Youngster are following her out. Note that in this version, There's no conversation between her and Youngster, and nothing about him waking her up. All three of them run down the stairs and notice that the screen door was damaged. 
Eva asked if everything was okay, and a voice from inside the apartment responded, I fell down and hit my head. Eva says that she knows Catalina's voice and knew that it wasn't her. She says it sounded like a black person doing a poor impression of an elderly lady. And that is when she knew something was wrong, and she ran to the office. After her oral interview, Eva was transported to the police station to give a written statement. What you're going to notice here is that her statements are evolving in what, to me, seems like an obvious way. She keeps adding details to solidify her position as a good Samaritan witness rather than a suspect. I'll circle back to that later when we talk about the utility of these statements. But for now, just take note of the changes. This is what Eva had to say in her written statement. This time, when Jennifer wakes her up to tell her that she's going to use the phone, Eva notices that KD is sleeping on the chair in the living room with her. Then, after Jennifer leaves to use the phone, Eva says that she started hearing a woman screaming. She says that she was half asleep and thought that she might be dreaming it. Then, Youngster comes into the living room and he wakes Eva up and asks her if she was hearing the screaming. So now, not only is she asleep in her apartment during the attack, but she's also added two witnesses who were in the living room with her during the attack. She says that she heard the screaming for a good 10 minutes before she realized what it was. Eva then says that after the three of them realized what the screaming was, they all went out to investigate, her leading with the boys following behind her. She says that she can see that the patio door was all the way open and the screen door was ripped away and hanging from the frame. Then Eva hollers out, Are you okay? Then a voice from inside says, I'm okay, I just fell and hit my head. She says that she noticed that the voice was too deep and raggedy to be Catalina's. It sounded like a black person trying to disguise their voice as an old woman. She again says at this point that she knew something was wrong and she took off running to the office for help. And she says that as she was running off, she saw someone coming up from the other direction, who she assumed was Jen. Before I move on to Jen's version, I want to point out two things about Eva's statement. First and foremost, I want you to pay attention to the evolution of her story. Not just the fact that it changed, but how it changed and in what order. First, she tells the managers that the woman below her is screaming and needs help. Then an hour or so passes, and she adds to the story telling everyone around that she heard a voice from inside the apartment say, I fell and hit my head. Another hour or two passes, and she tells Swainson that it was actually a deep, raggedy voice, and it sounded like a black person impersonating an old lady that said, I fell and hit my head. And then she goes to the station and gives a written statement, and she adds the fact that the screaming was going on for 10 minutes while she was laying on the couch, she adds KD sleeping next to her, and lastly, she adds Youngster waking her up to ask her about the voice. A big change from her noticing them as she was opening the door. I bring this up because I had never taken the time to really think about the sequence before. This week, I've had a lot of great discussions on the fan page with listeners who were challenging the idea that the voice was made up. A few people brought up the fact that there was no reason to add in the fake voice. Eva was already alibied by KD and Youngster, who she said were in the living room with her during the attack. It's a conversation that I'm glad I had. Because now I feel I have a clearer picture of how this story evolved. I'm sure some of you will disagree with my analysis, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. I think that the evolution makes perfect sense. First, Eva runs to the office for help, and she tells the managers that Catalina was screaming, and she needs help. Then, after the police arrive on scene, 
Things calmed down a bit, and she had some time to think about it. And I think Eve is not so sure she gave enough information, enough of a reason to know that she needed help or that she had fallen or that she had hit her head or whatever she actually said to them. She really had no way of knowing what was going on if there was just some screaming. So then after she realizes this and starts maybe questioning herself, she then tells everyone on the scene that she didn't just hear screaming. She also heard the voice from inside say, I fell and hit my head. Now she has a good reason for why she went to get help and why she directed the managers to go check her out. The problem seemed to be solved, except Catalina was clearly murdered, and therefore she would not have said, I just fell and hit my head as she's being attacked. And I think that's why Eva then adds in the fake voice. And this is where her entire reason for going to the office has changed. It went from hearing screaming and thinking the neighbor had hurt herself to running for help because she noticed the broken screen and the fake voice and knew that Catalina was being attacked. If you hadn't noticed before, the broken screen wasn't a part of the narrative either, not until she talks to police. And then after that, we have the final edition. She knows that she has now changed her story three times and that in her previous version, the boys don't appear until she's at the open door. And I think that's why she firms up her alibi by saying Katie was sleeping next to her and that Youngster had to wake her up. It gets her away from the door. So when it comes to Eva, the utility in lying about the fake voice is to cover up for the fact that she might have let a little too much information slip out when she told the managers to come for help. Remember, in the first version, in Pam's first recollection of that, Eva had told her that she was dead. And then that changes between her next statement and at trial to she was screaming and thought she hit her head. But she makes up the fake voice to make it clear, I had a very good reason to go tell the managers to come help because I heard a voice inside that apartment that I knew wasn't Catalina's saying I fell and hit my head. And the screen door was ripped off, so there must have been an intruder. Which that story makes perfect sense, it's just not the story she told at the beginning. And then there's the utility of putting KD in the living room and having Youngster wake her up, and that has always been clear. She's creating a false alibi for herself. I'll also point out that people might create a false alibi for themselves when they aren't actually guilty. There are other reasons to do that, but it's very clear that's what she's doing. But I'll take it one step further and say, I don't think she's just creating a false alibi for herself. I think that she had already done that. I think she made this change to get herself away from that door right after the murder. The second thing that I want to point out about Eva's statements is that they make sense. Independent of everyone else's statements, Eva's version or versions have a beginning, middle, and end. They're linear. There are no huge holes, gaps, or elements that just don't fit together. I'm asleep. I hear screaming. I wake up. I go out and check. I ask if everything's all right. I hear someone inside impersonating Catalina's voice, and so I go get help. Simple and logical and something to take note of for later. And now, let's move on to Jen's version. Swainson interviewed Jen at the scene right after he interviewed Eva. Unfortunately, Swainson either didn't ask many questions or didn't document them if he did. All it says about the moment in time that we're interested in is that Jen said after she returned from using Janet's phone, she was outside while Eva was calling into the apartment. But this is her version in her written statement. Now, keep in mind, this is the written statement. Hers and Eva's both were statements given to officers who weren't at the scene. 
They weren't being interrogated or interviewed like Katie and Youngster or like Jen was the next day. They just sat down in front of an officer who hadn't been to the scene, didn't know what was going on, and they gave their statements. Jen says that when she left to use the phone, Youngster was sleeping in the bed in the back bedroom, and Katie was asleep on the floor next to the bed. Eva was asleep on the couch in the living room. Jen tells Eva that she's leaving, and she goes to use the phone at Janet's. She goes and makes her calls, and then she returns to the apartment. She says as she walked around the corner returning from Janet's, she saw Eva on the steps talking to Catalina or into her apartment saying, Are you okay? Jen then hears someone call out from inside, Yeah, I'm okay. I just fell and hit my head. Then she says Eva asked the voice if she wanted her to call the police. The voice calls back, No, no, no. I'm okay. I just hit my head. Jen says the voice didn't sound right and that it was obvious that it was someone trying to imitate an elderly woman. Eva then tells her that she knows her neighbor and that wasn't her. And Jen also recognized that the voice was fake because she had exchanged hellos with Catalina earlier in the morning. Eva tells Jen that something's wrong, and Jen agrees, and she tells Eva to go call the police. Eva takes off for the office, and Jen says that she ran to the front door. She starts knocking and continues talking to the voice. Jen says that she's yelling to the obviously fake voice to let her in and that the police were on the way. Then the voice stops answering her, and that's when Red Rock rolls onto the scene. Let's first compare the two stories. Eva says that when she goes outside to check on the screaming, Youngster and KD are with her, and Jen is nowhere around. Jen says that KD and Youngster are not outside, but she's there talking to Eva. In fact, Jen says that she is actually the one who directed Eva to go call the police. So version 1 has Eva, Katie, and Youngster outside hearing the voice, and version 2 has Eva and Jennifer outside. That's a pretty stark difference. It's not a minor detail like getting someone's hair color wrong. We're talking about Jennifer giving a detailed description of a conversation with Eva that Eva says not only never happened, but also says Jen wasn't even there. At least one of these two is lying. And if you ask me, I think it's both of them. I say that because there isn't any self-preservation utility in Jen lying about the whole interaction if Eva is telling the truth in her version. Remember, if we believe Eva in her version, she at least thinks she sees Jennifer walking around the corner towards the apartment as she runs off for help. And that would mean Jen is already alibied. And if that's what happened, which would be the case if we believe Eva, then Jen knows she's already alibied because she knows that she wasn't there. She doesn't need any more help with that. If she's walking towards the apartment from Janet's while Eva is talking to the killer, Jen is innocent. And therefore, I think that they're both lying, but for different reasons. Since Jen doesn't need to add this element to her story to protect herself, I think that the only explanation is that she's lying to protect someone else. Next, let's evaluate if Jen's statement, quote, makes sense. Everything seems to be in order until she walks around the corner. She gets a page, she washes her face, tells Eva she's leaving, goes to Janet's, makes her phone calls, and then she heads back to Eva's. No problems, and most of that is verified by other witnesses. But then, everything falls apart. She says that she sees Eva yelling into the apartment. Her and Eva have a conversation about the voice being fake, and then Jen takes charge and tells Eva to go get help. The fact that Jen's plan is to send Eva for help while she stays behind to intervene is ridiculous to me. It's like something you would see in a movie. And let's not forget that Eva didn't say any of this was happening. 
She just thought Catalina was hurt. But Jen apparently knows that there's a man inside causing Catalina to scream, and she's evidently not scared at all. In fact, she stays back to insist the attacker open the door and let her in. I'm sorry, but no fucking way. That's not happening. And then there are a couple like little things to me that we call leakage. Like when Jen says that after Eva left, she, quote, ran to the front door. In her version of the story, they're standing less than 10 feet from the door, a couple steps at most. So did she run for 10 feet after Eva took off? Or did she actually run from the end of the building after Eva took off? Personally, I think the latter is more likely. When I look at Jen's statement, everything flows and reads as the truth until she turns the corner and sees Eva. And then suddenly she becomes Jason Bourne and starts calling shots and trying to get in to fight off the attacker. Add to that the fact that in Eva's version, Jen isn't even there, and I conclude that the fake voice never happened. At least not for Jen. So at this point, if we ignore the fact that the voice didn't exist in the first several renditions of the narrative, we're left with a couple of options. Either the entire story is made up, or Jen is lying trying to insert herself into Eva's narrative. Or Eva is lying and is for some reason excluding Jen. But not to try to throw her under the bus, as you might think. Because she does basically alibi Jen by saying that she thinks she was walking up to the scene as she was running away. So which is it? Is Jen lying? Or is it Eva? Or is it both of them? The only way to know is to compare the statements to those of Katie and Youngster. Katie and Youngster come in late in the game. On the morning of the murder, they're seen exiting Eva's apartment just before the ambulance arrived. They were yelling out to the crowd that everyone should have heard the lady screaming. They then walked over to Nina and Cena and asked them if they heard the woman screaming. And again, they say that she was screaming really loud and that everyone should have heard it. Then they leave the scene. Neither of them gave any interviews or witness statements on the day of the murder. But later that evening, the boys are back in the Green Arbor complex. Remember, we have that interaction where Swainson and Alan track Jennifer down and try to get her to lead them to Youngster and his little brother. Jen, reluctantly, according to Swainson, points them out in a crowd, but they manage to slip away before the police catch up to them. In my opinion, it was probably during this trip that the young men were filled in on the fake voice story. I think that when they left in the morning, they were told just to make sure everyone knows that there were loud screams. But as I pointed out, that story changed after they left. The next day, Jennifer finally agrees to help the detectives page Youngster. Youngster calls back, and Alan and Swainson head over to their mother's house to interview the two. The detectives talk to them for a bit in the house, and then they take both of them in separate cars down to the station to give written statements. We'll start with Youngster's version and see how it lines up with Eva's and Jen's. Youngster says that he and Jennifer went to sleep in the bed in the bedroom, and his brother Katie fell asleep on the floor next to them. He remembers Jen getting out of bed and leaving, and then he goes back to sleep. The next thing he knows, he hears a lady screaming. He wakes up and jumps out of bed, stepping over his brother, who was still sleeping on the floor. As he's about to open the door, Katie asks him what's going on. He says he doesn't know, and then he walks out into the living room, where he finds Eva at the front door. Now let's stop right there for a minute and assess where we're at. At this point, Jen and Youngster both say that Katie was sleeping on the floor in the bedroom, not in a living room chair. If we compare what Youngster is saying to Eva's first oral interview, everything still actually lines up. Remember, in that version, she hears the screams, gets up, 
And as she's opening the door, she notices the boys coming behind her. So everything actually lines up perfectly at this point before Eva changes her story in her written statement and says that Katie's sleeping next to her and the youngster had to wake her up. The question that I'm asking myself at this point is why doesn't Eva want to be at the door when the boys find her? There is some truth to the argument that Eva didn't need to make this change for her alibi. If she was outside while the killer was calling out from inside the apartment, then she's innocent. So why change the story? Why put Katie and Youngster in the living room with her while she's sleeping? I have a theory, but I'll save that for the end. For now, let's get back into Youngster's statement. As I said, up to this point, everything's looking good for Youngster. Where he was sleeping, where KD was sleeping, how he woke up, and where he found Eva when he entered the living room, all not only making perfect sense, but the narrative matches Jen's statement and Eva's first statement. So now let's see how things line up once he steps outside the apartment. Youngster says that he follows Eva out the door and down the stairs, and KD follows behind him. As Eva was making it down the stairs, Youngster sees Jen standing on the sidewalk to the left of the stairs. They were both looking at Catalina's sliding door, which, by the way, point of reference, from left of the stairs, you can't see Catalina's sliding door. But that's where he says Jen is. He says that Jen is standing about six or eight feet behind Eva. Then he says that Jen says to call 911. But Youngster thinks that she wasn't saying it to Eva. Rather, she was saying it to the two men who were also standing there. And based on his descriptions, this was Red Rock and Housen. So while Jen is telling Red Rock and Housen to call 911, Eva is asking over and over if anyone is in the apartment. And no one answered, so Eva says that she was going to just go to the manager's office. And then Jen just walks off in the direction of Janet's apartment. But Youngster isn't sure if she left before or after Eva said she was going to the manager's office. But he does know that after Jen walked off, Eva didn't go to the manager's office. She actually kept yelling into the apartment. Then Youngster heard a voice from inside saying things like, I'm okay, I just fell down, and you can go home now. Youngster says that it sounded like a man disguising his voice to sound like an old person. Eva keeps asking if everything is okay and if she should call an ambulance. When the voice stopped answering, Eva says, forget this, I'm just going to the manager's office. And this time, she apparently means it, because Eva runs off. And at that point, Red Rock and Housen are still there, and now Youngster adds in that Ruby Sullivan has also been standing there as well. I don't know when she got there, but Youngster says that she was still there when Eva ran off. Then, according to Youngster, Eva was gone for about two minutes, and he and KD stayed outside the whole time. When Eva returned with, according to Youngster, five people from the office, at that point, Jen is gone, but Youngster, Katie, Red Rock, Housen, and Ruby Sullivan are all standing outside waiting. And then at this point, Eva whispers to Youngster for him and Katie to go back upstairs into her apartment because she's worried about the complaints about the traffic in and out. So now we have three versions of what happened and we can't couple any two of them together. None of them are even close. Eva says that when she goes outside, Katie and Youngster are behind her, and no one else is around. She may have seen Jen approaching the scene as she ran away, but other than that, it was just the three of them. Jen says that when she approached the scene, it was only her and Eva outside, Katie and Youngster were nowhere to be found. And now Youngster says that he and Katie did in fact follow Eva down the stairs, but waiting outside at the foot of the stairs was Jen, Red Rock, Housen, and Ruby Sullivan. 
So we have one version with Eva and the boys, one with just Eva and Jen, and one with all four of them plus three bystanders. In Eva's version, as soon as she hears the fake voice, she runs for help and leaves the boys outside to wait. In Jen's version, it's only the two of them, and Jen tells Eva to go call 911 while she herself holds down the fort. And then in Youngster's version, Eva says she's going to the office, Jen just walks away, then Eva continues to yell into the apartment after Jen's gone, then they hear the fake voice, Eva asks if she should call an ambulance. When there's no answer, Eva runs to the office, leaving Katie, Youngster, Red Rock, Housen, and Ruby all standing outside waiting, with Jen nowhere to be found. Just like with Jen, before they step outside, we have a linear story with Youngster that makes sense. Everything sounds believable, it's verified by other witnesses, but then Youngster steps outside and he seems to be in an alternate universe. Things are clunky, like Jen says call 911, then Eva says she's going to the office, then Jen walks away and doesn't call 911, then Eva doesn't run away but instead yells into the apartment again, then the fake voice comes and Eva asks the supposedly obvious fake voice if she should call an ambulance, not the police, but an ambulance. There's just no flow to that narrative at all. It's like Youngster just glued a bunch of puzzle pieces together rather than figuring out how they were actually supposed to fit. And besides that, we know that Red Rock, Housen, and Ruby Sullivan were not there during any of this. And we also know that based on Pam's statements, that not even Katie and Youngster were outside when Eva and she returned. As a side note, they also weren't outside when Red Rock and Housen were there. This is all just nonsense. And it's not like Youngster just had a bad memory. We see his recall abilities in the first portion of his statement. He can easily recount his actions and movements and those of the people around him. But when he walks out the door, he can't make that narrative work. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So who's lying now? Do you still think that the voice happened? Well, then who got it right? So far, we have three statements, and they all contradict each other. No two of these can be the truth, so it's either one or none, and I'm leaning towards none. But let's look at the utility of this lie for Youngster, and KD for that matter. It's pretty obvious that his version of the story is not how things went down. In fact, I'm pretty certain that he was never even outside of the apartment that morning, not until he came out going on about the woman screaming later. And if that's accurate, that this was a lie, and he was not outside with Eva and certainly never heard the fake voice then what does he have to gain by lying? Is it self-preservation? Nope. The story actually makes his situation worse. He was inside sleeping during the murder, but now he's lying about being outside witnessing this critical moment in the case. That doesn't help him. So why is he telling the lie? Well, I'm going to call him like I see him. If he's not lying to protect himself, then he's lying to protect someone else either Jen or Eva.
Now, let's take a look at our last player's rendition of the man with the disguised voice, KD. Here's how he says things went down. He says that he was sleeping on the bedroom floor next to the bed where Youngster and Jen were sleeping. Eva was out in the living room as far as he knew. He wakes up to the sound of a woman screaming for help over and over. He notices that Jen isn't in the room and he tries to go back to sleep in between the screams. Then he hears the front door of the apartment open. Now, Youngster didn't say that he heard the door open at this point, but he did say that Eva was already at the open door when he exited the room. KD then hears Eva yell out, what's wrong? Then Youngster jumps out of bed and steps over him. KD gets up too and follows him out the door. Again, just like with Youngster, KD's story here is consistent with Jen's, Youngster's, and Eva's first oral interview. It makes sense, it's linear, there's no problems with it, and then he goes outside. In KD's version, it's only him, Youngster, and Eva outside. He specifically says that Jen is not around, and of course, no Red Rock house in a ruby. He says it's only the three of them. Katie can see that the screen door is damaged, and Eva starts asking if everything is okay. Then he hears someone impersonating an old lady's voice saying, everything is fine, you can go back upstairs. Eva then tells the brothers to go back upstairs. He says that she was worried that the manager would find all the traffic and she'd be in trouble. Then, as they were about to go back upstairs, Katie hears the same fake voice say, let go of me, let me go, Mike. At least he thinks the name was Mike. At that point, Youngster and Katie go back upstairs into the apartment for a few minutes because they didn't want Eva to get in trouble. But then everything was quiet, so they went back outside. Then, Katie sees Jennifer come walking, as he puts it, very calmly around the corner towards the apartment from the direction of Janet's. And then we have this weird jump. We go from he and Youngster standing on the stairs watching Jen approach the scene to Eva standing there and a, quote, Mexican maintenance man jumping over the fence. KD never actually says anything about Eva leaving the scene. Not once. Nothing. First, the problems. We're now four for four, at least if we're considering Eva's first statement to the police, as to where the boys were sleeping, when Jen left, how they woke up, and where Eva was when the boys exited the bedroom. And we're zero for four as far as consistency once everyone goes outside. We have four versions of the story, and still we cannot couple any two of them together. Here's the breakdown one more time, now including Katie's version. Eva says that she goes outside with Katie and Youngster, and they're the only two around. Jen says that she's there with Eva, and the boys are not outside. Youngster says that he's outside with Katie, Eva, Jen, Red Rock, Housen, and Ruby. And KD says that it's just him, Youngster, and Eva, but in his version, Eva never leaves to go to the office. He says that she told him and his brother to go back into the apartment. They go in there for a minute, they come back out, and they see Jen calmly walking towards the scene, with Eva standing there with a maintenance man. In Eva's version, she never tells the boys to go back inside. In Youngster's version, she tells them to go back inside after she returns with Pam. In KD's version, she tells them to go back inside while she's still communicating with the voice. And in Jen's version, they were never outside to begin with. Also, neither Pam, Ruby, Keith, Red Rock, or Housen ever saw the boys outside of the apartment until the ambulance was about to arrive. None of them. And of course, KD is the only one to hear the voice say, let go of me, Mike.
Everyone is going to have their own opinions, and this is mine. All four of the occupants of Apartment 58 demonstrate good recall abilities. They're all able to consistently retell the events leading up to Eva, Katie, and Youngster walking out the door. Then, they all blow it when it comes to the most important part, the fake voice. They cannot get their story straight, and we're not talking about small issues like exactly what someone said, or what time it was, or what someone was wearing. Those are things that you expect eyewitnesses to get wrong. With these four, they can't agree on who was there or the basic sequence of events. And my conclusion, after spending a week sorting through all of these details, is that I stand with my previous assessment. There never was a fake voice. It's fiction. It's a round peg in a square hole. It doesn't fit into each of their narratives because it didn't happen. And when you have four people using their imagination to fill in gaps of a fictional story, well, it ends up like a choose-your-own-adventure book. Which leads me to my next point. I am thoroughly convinced that the fake voice never happened. Besides the reasons that I just explained, we also can't forget that for the first hour after the attack, none of the four from the apartment said that it happened. It was an afterthought, an evolution of a story. But it can be valuable to us. In my opinion, all four are lying about the voice. We've already discussed the utility in each of them lying. Katie and Youngster are both better off without the lie. Sleeping in the back bedroom during the murder is a pretty damn good alibi. So there's no way that they would lie to help themselves. So I believe they lied to help someone else. And that leaves Jen and Eva. As I said, the lie doesn't help Jennifer either. She, Eva, and Katie all tell some version of Jen casually walking around the corner from Janet's as Eva is about to run to the office. And if that's true, if we believe Eva or we believe KD or Jennifer, then Jen, again, knows that that's what she was doing at that time. And that means Jen doesn't need to be there for the fake voice. Being a Janet's on the other side of the complex is a better alibi. So if Jen is not lying to help herself, but rather to help someone else, then that leaves Eva. And as we discussed earlier, it's easy to see the utility in the evolution of Eva's story. First, she needs a reason to run to the office. She heard screams. But then she realizes she might have leaked a little too much information out during that encounter. So she adds in that the scream shouted out that she had fell and hit her head. But then she realizes that she screwed up again because Catalina wouldn't say she just hit her head if she's being murdered. So Eva has no choice but to add in not only the fake voice, but the fact that she saw the broken screen door. It had to be someone else saying that Catalina hit her head, because Catalina wouldn't say that herself. And then, she's just about out of the woods, except for one thing. And that's when the boys find her, she's already at the door. Now I know that there is a strong stop-picking-on-Eva crowd in our groups, and I certainly encourage and appreciate the opposing viewpoint. And I also know that the rest of this episode is going to piss you off sorry about that, but I'm going to speak the truth and I have clearly laid out my logic for my conclusions. If someone can present me with a logical argument to dispute what I've said and I'm about to say, then I'm all ears and I'm open to changing my mind for sure. But if you're going to hear all of this and then come at me with the you think she's guilty because you think she was a sex worker bit, I don't have time for that bullshit. Come with facts and don't let your argument be to try to minimize 
an hour's worth of logic that points us in this direction. And with that being said, here's my analysis. My read on Eva's statements is that her actions and evolution of her story demonstrate guilty knowledge. When someone has done something wrong, and they know that they've done something wrong, they see all the angles. They may be panicked at first, but they will realize why small details are important, even when other people might not even notice them. Changing where Katie was sleeping and adding youngster waking her up is the first thing that gave it away for me. As some have said on the fan page, why would she add that element? She was already alibied. And for us, with hindsight, yes, she was. She was outside talking to the voice during the murder, at least according to her story. But for some reason, she does not want the police to know that she was already at the door when Katie and Youngster came out of the bedroom. If I had to guess, I would say that it's very likely that she evolved her story to get her away from the door because she was coming in, not out. There's just no reason to lie in a sworn statement like she did if she was truly going out in reaction to hearing the screams. I know that, and you know that, but she knows what she was actually doing at that door. And because of that, she's going to try to distance herself from it. It's just a theory, but I think it's the strongest and most well-supported working theory that we have right now. My full theory on these few minutes is that Eva was walking back into the apartment when she heard stirring in the bedroom and heard KD asking Pharrell what he was doing. When Youngster walked out, she was busted standing at the door. So she says she's going down to check out the screaming. And I think it's at that point she probably tells them to stay inside. I believe that Youngster and Katie were trying to see what was going on out the windows. And that's why we have the sporadic details in their stories. They could only see some of what was happening and they couldn't hear any of it. And so they're trying to piece it all together while also adding in this lie about the fake voice. Think about this. Eva is so very concerned about Catalina that she went outside, kept calling out and asking if she needed help, and then ran to the office to get the managers for help. But then what does she do when they get back to the apartment? What would you do in that situation? Would you be curious to see what's going on when they open the door? Would you want to be there as an extra set of hands if needed? Not Eva. What did she do? She went straight up into her apartment to talk to Katie and Youngster immediately when they arrived back on the scene. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that we get a pretty good explanation as to why she ran upstairs instead of checking to make sure Catalina was okay. A few minutes later, Katie and Youngster come out of the apartment yelling for everyone to hear, did you hear that old lady screaming? Oh my God, it was so loud. Everyone should have heard her screaming. Personally, I don't think there was very much screaming at all, at least not the sustained screaming that they all described. The crime scene nor the medical evidence support that, and June Sage could only hear a single scream after the girl knocked on her door. Plus, as I've said before, the boy's behavior is classic overselling, going out of their way to make sure everyone knows that there was screaming. I think that what woke them up was Eva frantically coming back into the apartment. She was probably screaming or crying or carrying on in some way, and that's what woke the boys up. And that's why she had to get up to them immediately and tell them to tell everyone that they heard screaming. 
Again, at this point, in those first few critical minutes, she needed a reason why she ran to the manager's office. And the first rendition of that story was simply screaming. And then, here's another wrinkle in the story. Supposedly, the two boys, according to them, were told to go inside so that the manager wouldn't know that they had all this traffic in her apartment. And yet, Eva then sends the boys out shouting about the screaming right in front of the manager and the bystanders. Now, what we need to do next is see if we can source the lie. I was taught a long time ago when I first learned how to do statement analysis that when you have a group of people that are all lying about the same thing, what you want to do is find the one whose story makes sense, and you'll find the source of the lie. The psychology is actually pretty simple. Let's use a car accident as an example, and this is a super simple example, nothing like the crime scene we're dealing with now. But it's kind of a thought experiment. Let's look at a car accident. Say you're driving around with your friend one day and you're texting. You're not paying attention to the road and you end up swerving and you hit a tree. You don't want to get in trouble, so you make up a story. A deer ran out in front of you and you swerved to miss it and hit the tree. You know the story isn't true and you're worried that the police aren't going to believe you. And let's say in our fictional world, you crashed right in front of another friend's house. And those friends came running out to investigate. The police are on their way, so you quickly tell your friends to tell the police that they saw a deer run out in front of you and that that's why you hit the tree. This seems like a simple story, but it's not as easy to get right as you might think. We have another round peg and square hole situation here. All four of you will have a recall of your actual movements, and now you need to insert a detail that didn't happen. What ends up happening is that in order to make the new lie fit, you're forced to add in more lies. No one realizes this when the plan is formed. Now yourself, you're going to be fine. When you concocted the story, you literally imagined it happening in your mind. You picture the deer coming. You can see in your mind what direction it came from, where it went. You know if it was a buck or a doe. It's like you're writing the book. You have total control of the narrative because you made up the story. So when the police arrive and they ask you what happened, you're easily able to tell them the story without getting tripped up. You're the one whose ass is on the line, so you've thought through every detail and angle. But then the cops put one of your friends in the car and asked them what happened. They say that they were riding in the car with you and a deer ran out in front of you. But then the cops asked what direction it came from. Shit, we didn't go over that detail. The police start smelling a rat and start asking more questions. Did it have antlers? What was playing on the radio? Why didn't you see it coming? Which way did it go after you hit the tree? Was the driver on their phone? What did you do after the accident? Now their story doesn't match yours. And it probably doesn't make sense because they're getting tripped up because they didn't think of all these details. Then they move on to the friends who were actually inside their house when the accident happened. Their stories are even worse because they weren't even in the car. They can't recount the parts of the story that actually happened. So the same questions. Where'd the deer come from? Where did it go? Was it a buck or a doe? And then the tougher questions that require even more lies. What were you doing outside in your front yard? Well, that's a detail you hadn't discussed. All you said was tell them you were standing outside and you saw the deer. Now they want to know why you were outside. One friend says that they were just outside admiring their flowers. They ask the other one, they say that they were getting ready to hit the volleyball around with the other friend. Well, where's the volleyball? And on and on and on. Now that's a very, very simple example. But the principle carries through to any situation like this. It's a simple process. First, figure out who benefits from the lie. 
then figure out who can tell the story that actually makes sense. What you'll have is the source of your lie. There's also one more big clue. The source of the lie will be the protagonist character in every version. So let's look at our stories. In this case, we have Jen running to the door from 10 feet away, and she's playing out a scene from an action movie. In Youngster's version, the whole neighborhood is standing outside, and literally everything he says is verifiably false. In KD's version, he's outside, but never sees Eva run to the office, and he hears the voice say things that no one else heard it say, and there's noticeable gaps in his story. Things don't flow. There's not a beginning, middle, and end once he's outside. But Eva tells a simple story that makes perfect sense and has an explanation for everything. Even when she changes her story, in every version, everything flows. And to add on to all of that, there is actually one consistency in all four stories. Eva. Eva is the only person who is present in everyone's story of hearing the voice. No matter from which angle, no matter who else was there or who wasn't there, it's always a story about Eva hearing the fake voice. In everyone's version, that's the only thing they all get right. So let me recap, and you can draw your own conclusions. It's pretty easy to deduce that the voice never happened if you just track Eva's own statements and take a look at how Pam Wiley reacted to the reporting. She didn't change her story and add the voice in until after the police arrived. That's just a fact that's in the record. Also, Eva's the only person who actually benefits from telling the lie about the voice. And Eva's the only person who was present in all four versions of the lie. And Eva's is the only version of the lie that actually flows with the beginning, middle, and end that makes sense. So make up your own mind. Who do you think was the source of the lie? Or to put it more clearly, who do you think asked the other three to lie about the fake voice? To wrap things up today, I'm going to share with you something that I've been holding back since my trip to Houston. I told you all after my return that while I was in town, I spoke with Ruby, Nina, and Cena Sullivan. I first spoke with Ruby on the phone. She didn't really remember much about the incident. Definitely not any details, but she told me that I should talk to her daughters. So next I spoke with Nina. I had been to her house and left a card, and she called me back as I was in my hotel packing up for the next day's flight. She remembered the incident well, but didn't really have any new information to add. She just kept saying that it was a long time ago, and I got the impression that she really didn't want to talk about it. And then, on my very last night in town, Cena called me. I had also left a card with her son at her house earlier in the day. I was driving to meet someone for dinner when she called. She was very nice and was happy to chat. She told me that she didn't know the girls from the apartment at all, but she did know youngsters, sort of. They weren't really friends, but she knew him. And she even told me that she had heard that he had been killed in a robbery. And she also knew Catalina. Not really by name, but she said Catalina used to walk around the complex a lot and that she would always stop and talk. And Cena described her as just a very sweet woman. And now, the next thing I'm about to tell you, I've been holding off on because I wanted you to hear Cena say it in her own words. When we spoke that evening, she agreed to do a phone interview with me after I got back into the office. 
Since then, I have talked to her on the phone at least three times. We've scheduled the interview several times, but something has always come up. I finally decided today that I need to go ahead and share with you what Cena told me. And hopefully, I'll get her on the phone for a recorded interview later so you can hear it again from her. One of the reasons that I wanted to speak with the twins was because they knew Katie and Youngster, and they most likely knew a lot of their friends in the neighborhood. I wanted to know if she had ever heard anything about the murder after the fact, because the police never went back to the complex and interviewed anyone around there after they arrested Jen. As they told Juan Mendiola, they got their girl, case closed. So again, keep in mind that Cena did not know Jen or Eva, not even by name. Cena said that she doesn't recall ever talking to Youngster again after he came up to her and her sister that morning. So I asked her if she ever heard any more details about the murder. And Cena very confidently said, quote, I know that girl who got convicted didn't do it. After Cena told me that, I followed up with, why do you think she didn't do it? And her response was, quote, I know that she didn't do it. Everyone in the neighborhood knew she didn't do it. And I said, that's a pretty bold statement. Do you recall who exactly told you that? And this is verbatim what she told me. I pulled my car over and wrote it down on my notepad the second she said it. Quote, Everyone in that apartment complex knew that the older girl and her boyfriend killed that woman. And they blamed it on that young girl. And they got away with it. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yomnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. 
You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at BobRuffTruth, and Mike can be found at MurbGaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.